it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to June Atoms. The final act of Philip Roth's achingly poignant novel Nemesis, based on the 1944 polio epidemic, condenses the trajectories of each of the main protagonists' lives as a result of events that sultry summer. Bucky Cantor swapping life stories with a former pupil at his school. Though both had survived the illness, their subsequent lives were permanently altered, Cantor's in particular unfolding, or imploding, inexorably. Like all Roth's works, this is a tragedy, in this instance played out with the backdrop of stifling heat of that summer. Each of the players was altered by those events, and though I'm not claiming any direct analogy between that and our current era is valid, I found it hard not to keep returning to the book in my thoughts over the last few weeks. So far at least, and though I say that with a rider of a new version of Kawasaki's appearing, children don't seem to be as susceptible to the acute dysregulated inflammatory response claiming the lives of so many of their parents and grandparents. However, the implications for long-term health are arguably worse. For example, late presentations for other febrile illnesses. Emergency departments have never been so empty. Something feels wrong. Fear of infection by dint of exposure to a health facility. Interruption of standard health surveillance, particularly vaccination. Mental health, child abuse as a result of prolonged internment. And a loss, at least, of the social side of education. Madani examines the epidemiological data to date in the UK. The reasons for less aggressive disease in children are still not completely understood, though there are a number of candidate explanators. Host response factors, lower infective dose, age-related ACE receptor differences, and more recent exposure, perhaps, to antigenically similar coronaviruses conferring a degree of relative immunity. Infants seem to be more vulnerable than older children, but in the absence to date, of population screening and seroconversion estimates, there's little on which to base modelling. Remember at the start of March, just six weeks ago, the UK had witnessed only 85 cases. This is a literal exponential curve. What of the global situation? What is the expected trajectory for low and middle income countries? Jonathan Klein and colleagues at the International Paediatric Association provide an update on the global situation. Trevor Duke describes the unknowns and vulnerabilities. What is the outcome in TB or HIV co-infection? What about malnutrition? Are BCG and heat, each with its proponents, protective? Is there enough PPE? Is there enough soap, sanitizer? Can hypoxia be identified and treated? Cylinders last a couple of days, but concentrators, provided there is power and solar is an option, don't require a stockpile. So many practical questions to which we don't know the answer. Krishnan's paper and Powell's editorial evaluate the predictive value of pulsus paradoxus in children with acute asthma in Singapore. Though the usually accepted and most readily quantified standard of asthma severity is the peak expiratory flow, it's often unobtainable in young children and very hard to measure any severe exacerbations. Pulsus paradoxus, first described by Kusmal in the 1870s, is a classic medical school physiology. A greater negative intrathoracic pressure causing increased right ventricular filling 
and as a result of finite intraperitoneal volume, a splinting of the left ventricle. The final result is a fall in left ventricular stroke volume and blood pressure, 10 millimeters in systole by definition, and a compensatory increase in heart rate. I don't want to spoil the punchlines, but Pulse's paradoxus consistently predicts the need for adjunctive drug treatment and ventilatory support in the asthmatics that were studied. There are riders. It isn't easy to measure and susceptible to inter-observer variation, but the paper argues the case for at least including Pulse's paradoxus in the assessment of a syndrome in which all the individual measures, peak expiratory flow, blood gases, ability to complete sentences and gut feeling are all imperfect. This is my editor's choice for the month. Defining undernutrition is an issue that the international child's health community has wrestled with for generations. Part of the arguably insoluble problem is the overlap between chronic and acute malnutrition, represented phenotypically as shortness, stunting, and thinness, wasting, respectively. Standard deviation scores for each are easy to derive. Weight for AGZ score and height for AGZ score, for example, but don't solve the fundamental issue that many children have both. How does one then define a short, thin child whose weight for length Z score is bafflingly normal? Compounding the terminological problems are the multiple candidates for best marker. Skin folds, mid-upper arm circumference, weight for age, none of them are perfect. Few would argue, though, that conditional weight gain, in other words, regression of current against previous weight Z scores, is a valid marker, as is extremely low sum of skin folds. Despite vocal advocates, there's remarkably little previous literature addressing this question in the under six month age group. And with this backdrop, Zofar's study and Trehan's editorial provide some clarity. Using either sum of skin fold thickness and a conditional weight gain of more than minus two standard deviations as standards for weight faltering, weight for age Z score mid-upper arm circumference and weight for length scores were compared. Weight for age Z score performed best with a sensitivity of around 70% and a positive predictive value of around 85% with a promising likelihood ratio of 5.5. Assuming generalizability, there are reasons to be optimistic. That's all for now. Be sure to check out the website on adc.bmj.com, which of course includes the COVID subsite. See you next month. Bye for now.